0: There are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Unification Church held a mass wedding for 2,100 couples in New York City, even as the Reverend Sun Young Moon was sentenced to 18 months for tax fraud. The first victim of the Green River Killer was found near Seattle, Washington. The FCC approved the first ever AM stereo radio station in KTSA San Antonio was the first station to go stereo, and in a small off-Broadway theater. A show called Little Shop of Horrors made its premiere. Oddly, that is not the most amazing thing that happened in entertainment in July of 1982. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McQueenie, and welcome to another episode of 80s All Over. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Weinberg,
1: who's on the road this week. What's up, Scott? Hi, Drew. How are you? I am uh, recording from Austin. My friend, Stephen Janeiro, who, if you didn't know, is the writer, director, sound guru on Found Footage 3D. Stephen wanted to throw a party to uh, celebrate the release of our movie. But we wanted to make sure we got this episode in the books. So here I am recording from location.
0: As always, we appreciate all of the feedback, all of the reviews, all the reactions on social media. And we encourage you, if you are not already a Patreon subscriber, to please consider it. Because you guys are the reason that we are able to do this show. It is completely independent. We are happy to bring it to you advertiser free. But that means we need some support. And you guys do it in all sorts of different ways. And it really helps. You can also stop by 80sallover.com and visit the store.
1: So, Drew, I honestly think June 1982 was our first blockbuster episode. You you would expect that that kind of blockbuster mentality might follow through into July. But as we were about to discover, there's a a lot of grown up stuff in this month. So, Drew, let's get into it with one of the most juvenile films of the year, uh, which is clearly inspired by Airplane, but it has an R-rated edge and it's based on the then super popular General Hospital. It is Gary Marshall's young doctors in love dedicated nurses tell me where your mother lives all? skilled oh, surgeons
0: her. <laughs> tell her,
1: fight to save lives i looked in your mouth probed every part of your body
0: it's fine.
1: how should i know i'm a lawyer these are young doctors in love Yeah. rated off. now playing at a theater near you
0: i think everybody was determined at this point to try and make their own airplane and this being gary marshall's attempt I mean, he got on the dartboard. It's not a great movie, but it's a movie.
1: Definitely has its moments. Everybody in my family was a huge fan of the uh, Michael Richard subplot, where he's constantly trying to kill the uh, informant, and it's literally like Wile E. Coyote in Roadrunner, where just every time he tries to kill him, it blows up in his face, uh, and it's got Dabney Coleman.
0: How about a shout-out for Dabney Coleman out there? Oh, no.
1: <laughs> Dabney Coleman is 1st grade.
0: Beyond that, it follows the shape of it's a year in the life of these young interns. They come in and they're they're it's
1: scrubs. Essentially,
0: Michael McKeon is the brilliant young surgeon who's going to be the one that breaks through. And you've got guys like Rick Overton and Ted McGinley and
1: Sean Young is the uh, is the female lead. And she's actually quite funny. Taylor Negron is very good and in you this. You've got uh, yep.
0: Harry Dean Stanton and Saul Rubinek in, pl- in their own subplot, and Saul Rubinek's hair alone is kind of
1: worth taking a look at this movie for. And like most of these rapid fire, broad satire, spoof, call it what you will parody, they almost play like anthology films, which is like, here's a gag, boom, is it eh, B minus? Here's a gag, oh, that one was good, A plus. Here's a gag, ugh, dud. Airplane, I think the batting average, somewhere around 80%, 85%. In a lot of the knockoffs, if you can get 55 or 60 percent, you're doing OK. And I think Young Doctors in Love gets about 55, 60 percent of the last. That's
0: a very generous assessment. And I think that this movie, because it actually is a film, because they had the sense to try and write something that has a shape to it and there's a structure to hang the jokes on, it's more successful. The hardest part is that the reality of these movies is so liquid that. You know they'll do something that is really outrageous and silly, and then they'll do something where it's supposed to be a little more grounded to make the joke work. When it doesn't work, it really doesn't work. But Pamela Reed, I think, gives a nice performance. I would like. I really like seeing Harry Dean Stanton do a movie like this where he's getting to play a weird character, and you can tell that he's kind of enjoying it. And uh, I'm down with that. I'm. I really like Taylor Negron. There's never enough Dabney Coleman in a movie like this. Dabney Coleman is the best. But if you make the Scrubs comparison, he is the McGinley archetype, that super macho uh, head surgeon. And he is
1: maybe the most disgusting version of it that he ever played. So so I recommend Young Doctors in Love. And it does have an interesting footnote in that uh, obviously it arrived just as General Hospital was particularly popular with the whole Luke and Laura thing, but there's a, a sequence where a bunch of kids are all dancing to it like what sounds like an early retro rap song i don't know if it played a lot where you lived but general hospital played quite frequently on philadelphia radio around no one could prove that he was a crook to Luke stole his little black book <laughs>
0: I will say this uh it's interesting seeing because Gary Marshall has always had a love affair with Hector Elizondo and has put him in everything and he has called him his lucky charm and they had a long 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 creative relationship Elizondo has one of the biggest storylines in this movie and I just get the feeling there came a point where it was probably not that big in the script but Marshall just kept
1: giving him stuff because he likes him so much you know what else I like, Drew? What's that? I like our next movie. <laughs> it is an insane, whacked out genre mashup that, when it was being written, was called Kung Fu Zombies. Genre fans know it better as Raw Force. Big John Taylor, mercenary, soldier of fortune. He's more than a man. He's a walking death machine. Candy O'Perron, sexy undercover cop. Her deadliest weapon is her body. Michael O'Malley, Hollywood's top stuntman. Only this time the action's for real. And Rick Chan, black belt, primed for action with one blow. A death blow. Only two words describe the power and fury of this unstoppable team, Raw Force.
0: This is insane. There is nothing they won't try. There is nothing they don't throw at it. It is, as no joke, as exploitation as any exploitation When we will talk about on this entire podcast. I kind of love it for that.
1: I would like to read the uh, official plot synopsis, if I could, from IMDb. <clears throat> A group of martial arts students are en route to an island that supposedly is home to the ghosts of martial artists who have lost their honor. A Hitler lookalike and his gang are running a female slavery operation on the island as well. Soon, the two groups meet and all sorts of crazy things happen, which include cannibal, monks, piranha, zombies, and more.
0: That does not even scratch the surface, though. That's that's what's crazy is you can describe it like that, and it's much weirder. I was really surprised in looking up on uh, IMDb to see that Eddie Murphy directed the movie and wrote the movie. And I assume it's the same Eddie Murphy,
1: correct? It's possible. This uh, is an American (laughs) independent film that was shot in the Philippines. Apparently, it was much longer and was recut by Z movie legend Jim Wynorski. Who is a monster for cutting a second of this thing? Yeah, all I
0: know is I am excited to get the heated vengeance in 1985 because I've never seen it, and it's the only
1: other movie this guy wrote and directed. It is just ramshackle. It, it it feels like three fun B movies wedged together.
0: It's got Cameron Mitchell as the worst cruise boat captain of all time. Worst. It, uh, there was a point where my worse b-
1: than George Kennedy in Death Ship.
0: Yeah, and that's bad. It feels like it was written by somebody playing cards against humanity. You know, I can't be mad at a film like this because it is so relentlessly trying to entertain you and it has nothing else on its mind it's not about anything <laughs> it's not remotely about anything making this kind of movie you almost have to be that
1: right and it i mean it's certainly a bad film in many regards it's got some horrible performances a lot of it is completely nonsensical plot wise but it's just got a, a, a grindhouse energy and and a color that makes it kind of adorable Raw Force.
0: So our next movie seems like an interesting double feature with that, where if that is the craziest a movie like that can get, this next film is somebody trying to class it up and make it respectable, and we'll see how successful they are as we talk about The Challenge.
1: He's an American 5,000 miles from home. Caught in a war between two brothers. The Challenge. The Challenge. He will learn loyalty, love, honor, vengeance. He will learn to accept the challenge. Scott
0: Glenn, star of Urban Cowboy in The Challenge, rated R.
1: He is a boxer hired to transport a sword to Japan, and then he gets all tangled up in a blood feud between two brothers and Drew... I'll give you the honors. Who plays one of those brothers?
0: I was delighted because I had no idea when I put it in uh, that Toshiro Mufune is one of the stars of the film.
1: It's also got an early Jerry Goldsmith score, which is both adorable and reminiscent of earlier Jerry Goldsmith scores. And it was co-written by the great John Sayles and directed by John Frankenheimer.
0: And there's stuff in this movie that I really like. I think the first half works a little better than the second half. I think the second half, I love what it's trying to do. But it's a real clear indicator of how much filmmaking has changed, because if you were to make this movie now, Scott Glenn would get good with the sword. Like he would actually start to pick up the training and he would become somewhat dangerous. And that last fight would be intense because Scott Glenn would be ready for it. Instead, in this entire movie, Scott Glenn basically is terrible at everything he is asked to do. He barely gets through this film in one piece.
1: I, I think that's one of the clever parts of the screenplay is that he seems like an u- ultra tough guy. And then not only is he completely out of his element in when he gets to Japan, but he's not nearly as tough as we thought he was. You don't
0: really know what film you're watching for about 30 or 40 minutes. Like it really takes its time dropping all the pieces in the place. And by the time Mifune finally appears, you're a pretty good chunk of the way into the movie. Then the movie finally starts to take a shape and you get a sense of what it is. And, I really like the relationship that Scott Glenn has with him. Again, you want to talk about a different era. Scott Glenn's bowl haircut in this movie uh, blows my mind as a haircut that was worn by a leading man in any film ever. It feels like a movie that um, has a lot of 70s still on it. You know, I think of the Yakuza as a movie that's somewhat like this. Um, I like this
1: one better. The appeal of this one to me is, I think, kind of like what you liked about Vice Squad. And that's what I like about this one is that they know it's just a a B movie with a decent pedigree. So, yeah, if you want to dig up a a decent uh, old MGM action movie that you may not have heard of, look for John Frankenheimer's The Challenge. I have a challenge for you, Drew. What's our next movie? (laughs) Ha ha!
0: There is a sort of little mini trend that happened in the 80s where one author's work started to get adapted and they did a quick run through most of her books. This is the first one to make the uh, actual release. I'm kind of fond of the sweet, sincere little Tex.
1: Based on S.E. Hinton's best-selling novel, Tex, with Matt Dillon in the lead role. Somewhere between all the good times, the trouble, and all the pain, Tex McCormack is trying to become a man, and it's not easy. As Drew mentioned, uh, S.E. Hinton, phenomenally popular writer, wrote uh, Tex, wrote The Outsiders, wrote Rumblefish, all became interesting films, and all feature Matt Dillon.
0: I wonder how much of that was because he was a guy who was sort of in that age range right then and uh tim hunter who directed this movie had obviously worked on over the edge so he was well acquainted with what dylan could do i would not necessarily think of matt dylan as a cowboy like a guy you cast as an oaky cowboy kid but he's really good here
1: matt dylan is an actor who's been with us pretty much our entire lives the guy is still churning out really good performances It's hard to find a bad one. I mean, I'm sure you could find one. But even in this where he may have been slightly miscast, and I believe I read that Essie Hinton thought he was miscast at first and then had a second thoughts about that and obviously did not have a problem with him being cast in subsequent adaptations. I can't believe some of what they do in it. Like
0: it's for a PG Disney film. They talk about uh, Coke sales and they talk about possible abortion. And they're like, it's it's a movie that has a lot of heavy moments that Tex goes through. I really respect that this was a Disney film and it's got Walt Disney's name on it. It's not Touchstone. It wasn't them doing the early Buena Vista game where they kind of hid the Disney involvement. This was a Walt Disney release, and I, I think it's a brave movie for them.
1: Again, it preceded The Outsiders and Rumblefish. So if you wanted to like watch it as a progression of the S.E. The e. Hinton uh, adaptations and obviously Matt Dillon's evolution as an actor, it features a young Meg Tilly, a very young Emilio Estevez. Uh, Matt Dillon and his brother, Jim Metzler, their mother has passed away. Their father left them and uh, they're just uh, two teenage brothers trying to um, find their way. It's very unassuming. Like Drew said, it has a real charm to it. I I wonder if young 12, 14 year old kids would find it kind of dull. It is a bit dry, but I enjoyed it. And
0: I I think the sincerity helps Charlie Haas who wrote the, uh, the screenplay here, one of the authors of Over the Edge, he worked on Gremlins 2, he worked on Matinee. He's a guy who I think had a, uh, a very distinct voice and it helps in the adaptation because I don't think he sugarcoated what could easily have been sugarcoated. His buddy who moved away strikes me as a character from Dazed and Confused who wandered into a Disney movie. There's something about him and about his his wife and about the whole thing he's living where it's like, wow, you came from a different film and every time he's in the movie, it suddenly gets dangerous. Tex, well worth it. Uh, You know what is not worth it, Scott? Zapped. If you've
1: always felt like you were missing something, then Barney and Payton are your kind of guys. If Zapping sounds like it could be your answer, then it's time to find out about illegal gambling. Do-it-yourself exorcism. Premarital sex. And if a movie that bears the naked truth about dating sounds like your kind of movie, see Scott Baio and Willie Ames in Zapped. Yikes.
0: It very much feels to me like they saw the Kurt Russell Disney live action comedies, Computer Wore Tennis Shoes, and Now You See Him, Now You Don't. And this is The Computer Got a Boner. It is the smutty, shitty version
1: of those Disney comedies. Zapped is about an idiot who concocts a formula that allows him to do telekinetic things. So it's kind of meant to be a comedic, not a satirical, but a comedic spin on Carrie.
0: And of course, half of what he uses is telekinetic powers for sex crimes. Heather Thomas is the bully girl in this, and they certainly make the most out of popping her top open when they can. It's interesting because the girl that plays the actual romantic lead and the movie takes a detour into this. Very, very sappy teen love story involving Scott Bayo and Felice Schachter, who was originally cast on The Facts of Life. She was one of the girls for the first season. She left that show early and then kind of left show business not long after that. She's better than this movie. She's better than Willie Ames. She's better than Scott Bayo. And it really unbalances the film because they're both so terrible when they're on.
1: I hate to say it because I, I want to like Willie Ames because he seems amiable. Dude, shut up. Comedy (laughs) is free. But yeah, I mean, the movie and then it would follow, obviously, with Charles in charge as if they were some kind of like on point comedy team.
0: Dude, as soon as I mentioned on Twitter that I thought this was terrible and I I watched the whole thing and I gave it a chance again. I really did try to to go into it with the maybe there will be some funny stuff or at least maybe the exploitation edge will be handled well, but I just thought it was really dreary for the most part and unfunny. I mean, you've got Scatman Crothers and Robert Manden, guys who are genuinely good.
1: There's a saving grace in this movie. It, it is that the lovable, adorable Scatman Crothers uh, pops up a he, couple but times. But they don't
0: let him do anything. And I find, I find what they have the adults do really puerile, too. It is a movie written by dumb people for dumb people. And sure enough, as soon as I said that, I got somebody who showed up who doesn't follow me, who must have been searching for Zapped every hour on the hour so that they could pop into my Twitter feed and scream at me about how it was the most influential teen comedy of the 80s, which, A, you're wrong, and B, it's not good. If that's the hill you
1: choose to die on, you chose poorly. I bet you 60% of the people who even mention Zapped have seen the poster and not the movie.
0: Now, speaking of posters, I'm really surprised that I never saw our next movie until we were getting ready for this podcast. And I I think it's because of the movie the guy made before this. But somehow, even though I was in my adolescence in the early 80s, and this movie was notorious for featuring acres of Daryl Hannah nudity, I never made it to summer
1: lovers. This summer, for the perfect vacation, without parents.
0: If you wanted a romance, you came to the right place.
1: Without pressure... I can't tell you how this place turns me out. And without wearing much more than a, a bikini. You're a little overdressed. We'll take your top down. Take a few very close friends to see. You're very affectionate. Summer Lovers. It's one summer you'll never forget. From Filmways Pictures, rated R. From Randall Kleiser, who directed uh, Grease and, of course, The Blue Lagoon, which is the film that seemingly inspired Summer Lovers to be created. If you just want to watch, like, minor softcore smut, you do Blue Lagoon, and then Paradise, and then this, Summer Lovers. Uh, a young Peter Gallagher and a young Daryl Hannah uh, on a Greek island canoodling with a, a French archaeologist and uh, tantalizing us with potential three-way sexuality. And uh, it's just really dull.
0: I gotta say, I like this more than I expected to. I don't love this movie, but I think it's more akin to where Greece lands than where the Blue Lagoon does. I hated the Blue Lagoon. There is a real openness to the way uh, the relationship between Daryl Hannah and Peter Gallagher, who they're the Americans who come together. You know, I will
1: say they're both pretty good, both together and individually. You know, you see these before they were famous performances and you're like, sometimes you're ready to cringe. Peter Gallagher and Daryl Hannah are both pretty decent in this movie. Well,
0: and Valerie Quinessen, who plays the uh, the French girl, I didn't realize until halfway through because of the, the way her hair is cut, it was driving me crazy. I'm like, I know her. I know her. I know her. I stood up and pointed at the TV and I'm like, Oh my God, Conan, the barbarian. It blew my mind when I realized she's the princess. (laughs) <laughs> it hit, it was the eyes finally that hit me. And she's not bad in this. I was a little surprised by it. There's a great sequence late in the film after, because it starts with Peter Gallagher sees this French girl and he becomes a little obsessed and he tells his girlfriend, I, I'm going to mess around and that's what's going to happen here. And I kind of can't help myself. I got to get it out of my system and see what it is. And instead of it being a movie about then her going and finding a guy, which almost happens for one scene, it then becomes the three of them become a group. And for most of the summer, They are just inseparable, all three of them, and that is sophisticated in its own... That's not sophisticated. That's a porno plot. Come on. I disagree with you. I think that it is more adult about the way they behave with one another. When Daryl Hannah's mom finally shows up with her aunt and walks in and has zero idea how to even contextualize what she's seeing, you realize that they've reached a place where they've become comfortable. It's not about... What anybody else would think or what American standards were at the time, I kind of like this movie because I don't think it is the smutty, shitty movie that the poster promised. Look, it's not great. I'm not trying to make the case for it as an amazing movie. It's not a true film. It's
1: not, you know, Jules and Jim, but it's solid. Part of the beauty of rediscovering these movies is that you know, a handful of these movies do have more artistry or do have something to them that stri- still strikes a chord. This one didn't do it for me. You know what I'm not fond of? Uh, Chuck fucking Norris. Oh,
0: we're going to talk about this one because, buddy, this movie is terrible, but it's so weirdly terrible
1: that I did It's didn't... called Forced Vengeance. Boy, that title sums it up.
0: He doesn't really want vengeance, but, you know, I guess if I have to, it's like Begrudging
1: Revenge. For Josh Randall, Hong Kong was just a stopover on the way home from Nong. But soon he was captivated by the charm of the people. At least most of the people. Randall doesn't have to look for trouble. He is trouble. Chuck Norris is host vengeance. Rated R. Chuck Norris, the human block of wood, stars as a security guard at a Hong Kong casino who seeks forced vengeance after his friends are murdered. Reluctant justice. Oh, God. All right. What about this movie do you qualify as insane to be enough to be I fun?
0: love that they asked him to narrate the movie in voiceover, and he makes Harrison Ford and Blade Runner sound like Jerry Lewis with his narration. Um, <laughs> it is... Amazing how badly written it is. And there are scenes like there's a scene where uh, some bad guys are on the boat. And so he gives his girlfriend a gun. And uh, then he goes in and kills all the bad guys. And he comes back, she fires through the door a few times. And he opens the door and he says, It's me, it's me. And she, uh, she gives him back the gun. And then in voiceover, just in case we missed all the subtleties of the scene, he says, Note, never let your girl hold your peace. <laughs> but the best line of dialogue in any Chuck Norris movie ever is in this film and I had to play it back like five times I had to bring other people into the room because I couldn't believe the scene uh he gets to a point where he's trying to find the bad guy that ordered the hit on the casino owner and so he's going to kill his way up the food chain until he finds it he goes to this one apartment and it's a rich guy and his boyfriend are in bed and Chuck Norris goes in immediately throws a blanket over the boyfriend and starts to douse the blanket in lighter fluid and then just so we know it's not a hate crime Chuck Norris begins the scene by turning to the homosexual in bed and saying, the
1: greatest man ever knew was a homosexual. Don't oh, oh, hurt me.
0: And then proceeds to torture his boyfriend with lighter fluid. And it really does sound like Chuck Norris went, well, I think they're going to think I don't like gay people. So can I I start the scene by saying that the greatest man I ever knew was a, a homosexual. It's bizarre. And the film is, for me, very, very funny until we get to the unnecessarily insanely brutal rape of Chuck Norris's girlfriend. And it's because the scumbags who make these movies genuinely think the worst thing that can happen to you
1: as a man is that your girlfriend gets raped. Uh, You notice that a lot of these these rape scenes are shown kind of from the male point of view.
0: Oh, 100 percent. And this one's gross.
1: It really is gross. I'm tired of it just being used as this like red meat for the audience. It made a dull Chuck Norris movie much more unwatchable i just i I, this movie
0: it's got a wild last 15 minutes of terrible fights the boss at the end in the wheelchair who then brings in the asian richard keel to fight chuck norris while tom and jerry cartoons play in the background and then they finally get to the end the end narration and all of a sudden it becomes a movie about hong kong where he's like hong kong place living on borrowed time and Whatever happens, Hong Kong will always be the place. They're going to give it back to the Chinese in 14 years, and it's going to be really dangerous. And uh,
1: what are you talking about? How is this? Yeah, dude, it's (laughs) nonsense. This is from James Fargo, who directed uh, The Enforcer, which is the third Dirty Harry movie. Uh, He also directed Every Which Way But Loose, and then this. (laughs) It was a lot of TV and something called Voyage of the Rock Aliens we're going to go from one black hole of charisma to another black hole of charisma
0: with the dreary NASCAR family comedy six-pack.
1: He's already the country's leading recording artist and a national treasure. Oh, you always had an interesting way of saying hello. Now, 20th Century Fox proudly presents Kenny Rogers in his first major motion picture, Six Pack. You race car driver, mister? Uh, used to be. Might have been again if I hadn't run into you guys. He's Brewster Baker, a dirt track demon whose racing career was going in reverse until he ran into six pint-sized grease monkeys.
0: Hey, okay, turn it over!
1: Hey, bro, what do you pay your crew with? All day, sucker? <laughs> Kiss off, mister. They're determined to help him. All clear. In their own special way. Hey, ah, yeah. man. believe Mitchell, <laughs> Kenny Rogers in Six Pack. They're going to steal your heart. Ooh, love will turn you around. Uh, my parents were madly in love with Kenny Rogers' greatest hits, volumes one and two. And anytime we were in the car for more than 15 minutes, those eight tracks, maybe, I think, were broken out. So I, I have a deep and old affection for Kenny Rogers' music. As a movie fan, I wanted to poke my fucking eyes out watching this movie.
0: Imagine if in 1977, instead of directing Star Wars, George Lucas had been cast in Smokey and the Bandit. Now, Cut the smoking hot on-camera charisma of George Lucas in half, and that's Kenny Rogers in Six Pack. Wow. There's scenes in this movie where I would look at anything else on screen to avoid looking at Kenny Rogers.
1: How is this not directed by Hal Needham? I know.
0: It feels like a Hal Needham movie, doesn't it? And oddly, it's not the worst singer-turned-actor performance in 1982. We will get to that one in the next episode.
1: But- yes, yeah, so Kenny Rogers uh, befriends six orphans, and they all seem to be remarkably talented where it comes to the building and fixing and taking apart cars. The oldest one is played by a young Diane Lane, who is far and away the most interesting, amusing thing in the movie. Aaron Gray is uh, the love interest for Kenny Rogers. They have about as much chemistry as as calculus are they
0: ever on screen together because i can't remember i blocked out giant chunks of this movie Uh, six
1: pack was co-written by mike marvin who we will get to soon i've
0: i've already announced in an earlier episode of this podcast mike marvin is my enemy and mike marvin will continue to be my enemy over the course of the show
1: this is a gentleman who has his name on films such as hot dog hamburger and the wraith drew do a review of six pack in your author author voice
0: Six-pack, got a lot of kids. They got to fix cars. There's going to be cars, and they're going to be in the blocks. And Kenny Rogers, (laughs) hoo-ha! It's unbelievably uninteresting. Why would anybody listen to him? Why would he suddenly be a force of good in these kids' lives? He barely even hangs out in a room with them long enough to to make an impression. Barry Corbin and Terry Kaiser and guys like that are thrown at this thing. The only other interesting kid, young Anthony Michael Hall, is one of the kids pre-vacation. And already you can see that he's got kind of comic timing and he knows what he's doing. And like you said, Diane Lane is better than this movie. It's one of those movies that I think was on cable a lot. And there's people that saw it over and over and they probably have fairly nostalgic feelings about it.
1: Nostalgia is a disease,
0: people. And don't go back and watch it. The funniest thing about this movie is the first season of Eastbound and Down, the Danny McBride show that he did with David Gordon Green and and, uh, Jody Hill. The entire season is built is a redemption story that's built around whether or not Kenny Powers is going to get back on the mound as a professional pitcher. And when he finally gets back up on the mound against the guy whose eye he put out in a professional baseball game, you end up rooting for him to put the guy's eye out again. And when he does, they begin playing the Kenny Rogers song Love Will Turn You Around from this movie. And it is the absolute perfect song for that moment and probably fits better there than it ever did in Six Pack. That song was on radio nonstop and was an advertisement for a zero of a movie.
1: And now we move on to something that was quite a bit larger. It was a big deal for Disney. It was supposed to be a blockbuster hit and it wasn't, but it did have a huge impact and we'll get into it as we discuss Tron. It happens inside the computer in a dimension man has never seen. Kevin Flynn, computer genius, is programmed into the world of the computer. Held prisoner in an electronic arena where love and escape do not compute. Tron, an adventure inside the computer, rated PG.
0: I'm going to go ahead and say that I love what Tron represents, but I do not love Tron.
1: When I was a kid... Even then, I thought, this is a fun movie, but it feels hollow. It feels like a cool video game. But even though Jeff Bridges is quite likable in the movie, there's very little human. He has
0: some really beautiful ideas. And, you know, the excitement that came back up when they were getting ready to make Tron Legacy, when Tron Legacy was in production and before that fleshlight of a movie finally came out, People were like, oh, maybe this time they'll finally like they'll nail everything they wanted to do in the first one. And certainly the new movie does a better job of trying to create a world. But I don't buy Tron like the, my, the biggest problem for me. And this is you, you can't deny that this is important in these movies. I get that it's the Wizard of Oz. I get that you get pulled into another world and you're supposed to go have your adventure. And then you come back and you get out of the world. I never got past how ridiculous the premise of the film is.
1: Oh, I mean, yeah, it's a literalization. uh, I mean, but you also have to remember that back in 1982, computers were like these magical boxes and these living creatures are inside the computers and they represent the synapses and they represent the, the circuits. Yeah, I mean, it does require a certain suspension of disbelief, but how is it any more absurd than Alice in Wonderland?
0: Wonderland isn't a thing that I have sitting on my desk
1: right now. Maybe it is, Drew. Maybe your body is a wonderland. Yeah, I don't think it is. Uh, but here's 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 what I want to get into, more so than what we think of the movie. What's interesting about Tron is that it was not the smash hit that Disney was hoping for, but it cast a very large shadow for at least the next three or four years. It inspired a lot of pretty cool video games. It certainly did kind of uh, wheedle itself into pop culture throughout the 80s. So I, I have an affection for Tron in that regard. I revisited it a few weeks ago and found it a lot more quaint and kitschy than I remember.
0: I don't mind if you're you're going to sell me a movie. I don't mind. I get it. Hype is hype. This movie's hype was largely built on a lie. 95% of what you see in this movie is hand animation. It's conventional animation. The entire notion of this is the movie where CGI was born and it's all in a computer and it's done by a computer. Bullshit. Uh, The guys who worked on this movie were conventional animators, and it was largely optical effects and conventional animation. There is very little in this movie that was actually done by a computer because, guys, we're talking about the era where the TRS-80 was cutting edge and where the Commodore 64 was still on the horizon and the Cray supercomputer could not do what we do now. The entire campaign for this movie was, we have changed the way films are made.
1: Uh, all right. Well, then you're talking about the marketing. You're not talking about, no, I'm the, talking about the, the marketing was just dis- the marketing was disingenuous. Lissberger they said that said the it was a- thing.
0: they all said it. And at the time they sold computer, computer, computer. It was really only later that the truth came out, which is that it's not the computer. And that's not what you're really looking at. It's it's largely a Disney animation unit working on.
1: Animation. Right, but again, if the marketing department tried to exaggerate the truth about how much digital animation was in the film, which is very, very little, then that's on the marketing department. Don't blame the film for them lying about the film.
0: And that's what nerds adapt. I don't know how many times over the course of the eighties, I had the conversation. Well, what's really important about Tron is it Tron was all computer animated, and computers did all the work.
1: Uh, well, and I don't people talk people to anybody it. who and, sounds like that. And secondarily it definitely is a watershed film. It it definitely did advance the art and the technology in some ways. These are problems
0: that I have with the movie. I don't think the movie is the groundbreaking landmark thing that uh, I've been told it was since 1982. There's no denying there's some brute force invention going on, but I don't think Lisberger's is a very good filmmaker. I think that when Lisberger made other films, his narrative weaknesses became even more pronounced. And I think what he had here was a coat of paint on top that people talked about because the coat of paint was kind of pretty. But you can't disguise the fact that he didn't know how to write human beings. I don't think anybody in this movie really works as a character. David Warner is honestly the MVP here because David Warner kind of brings a pulse to the character that he plays. But
1: whether it was digital or whether it was hand-drawn animation, I distinctly remember seeing Tron the weekend it came out. We can nitpick it now for not having much of a heart and not having much of a brain, but I was blown away by some of those effects. I was just like, wow.
0: Yeah, but that's not nitpicking. It's not nitpicking to say that you'd like it better if it was well-written and had a good script and was directed by somebody that can direct. I mean, the visuals are the visuals. That's not enough. And this movie has largely... Its reputation completely rests on the visuals. This is a Nostalgia Goggles movie to me. No, I, I agree think-
1: with you to a point. I think it's a slightly better movie than you do. Yeah, I don't think that it's one of the best films of this year. But then we can move on to a another Traditionally animated film. This one quite interesting. It's Don Bluth's, The Secret of Nim. Now, Don Bluth Productions creates a new world of animation, where fantastic creatures. Why have you come? Great dangers and great adventure await you. Look there. Discover the secret of Nim from the award-winning children's classic, rated G.
0: I can make a case for this being the single most important animated film since Snow White. At this point, we've talked repeatedly now on this podcast about how Disney had hit a wall, not even a speed bump. They'd hit a wall and they basically weren't functional as a company anymore. Their live action division was floundering. Their animation division was in shambles. There was an entire generation of young animators that had come up kind of watching the Disney movies who wanted to be those guys, guys like Don Bluth and Tim Burton. And, you know, some of the old men were still there and there was a a sort of a generational torch being passed. Don Bluth was one of the guys who led this charge where they realized Walt Disney's not going to let us make movies. They're not going to let us make our movies. They're not going to let us be in charge. We're going to be apprentices for the next 25 years and we'll never really have a creative voice here. He led a revolution where he walked out of the studio with a ton of animators and they said, we're going to go make our own movies. Now, at the time, there was no competition for Disney in the animation realm at all. There just wasn't. Nobody did it on the feature level except them. When Don Bluth raised the money to independently make this movie, what he did was establish, A, he could do a Disney movie his own way. And it's really not a Disney movie. It's stranger. It's weirder. It's got way more atmosphere. He learned his lessons from Disney, clearly. But he made an independent animated film at a time where no one did, released it. He had a monster hit. He finally broke through and he proved you can do it. Don Bluth was the first guy who genuinely challenged them and beat them at their own game. And if he had not, if that had not happened, I think not only would Disney have gone out of business, but I don't think there would be a family animation market today.
1: It is a massively influential film. Uh, It is about a mother, Mouse, whose son has pneumonia, and she has to move their home. But before she can do that, she has to go and track down uh, medicine for her son. In many ways, it sounds like a conventional quest movie but it also has a very interesting approach to nature. It has a subversive sense of humor. It doesn't talk down. It seems clear that Don Bluth, his edict was we're going to make a family film, but we're not going to soften every edge. We're not going to make it super sweet and safe. It's definitely one of the best animated films of the decade. Probably for my money, Don Bluth's best film.
0: The lesson that he and the other animators learned from Disney was that it's all about performance. And when you watch the acting, the, Character acting in this movie, not just the voice cast, but also then the way the the rats have such expression, and the other animals when they go see the great old owl, he is so expressive and so be- and it's so clearly John Carradine. It's great uh sort of design where the actor is incorporated to some degree. They really go out of their way to let the acting be front and center in this movie, and that alone made them special at the time.
1: Bluth focused on something that that Disney hadn't done at that point, which is. Let actors act. A lot of the voices in the Disney classics are very storybooky and very generic. Don Bluth, uh, more so even with American Tale and the second one, he really seemed to animate around good actors, which is something that has carried forward. Through DreamWorks and Pixar and, and, you know, letting the performer kind of help the animator create the character. And, and that's something that Bluth was great at. I
0: wish he'd been as good a businessman as he was in this first moment. I mean, he's bankrupted three or four studios that he's built from the ground up now, whether it's the Irish studio or when Fox Studios was built in Arizona for him. He can't keep the doors open. And part of the problem was he eventually went to that place where he started making really juvenile knockoffs of his own work. And he started doing worse and worse sort of kiddie garbage, like a troll in Central Park and rockadoodle and just junk after a while. There was a hunger. When you see The Secret of Nim*, everybody on this movie had something to prove. Everybody had a chip on their shoulder. Everybody wanted to show that they didn't need Walt Disney's name on it to do it. That motivation, loud and clear, comes out of this movie. And it's one of the reasons that it remains so incredibly interesting to watch.
1: We will chart the the evolution of the non-Disney animated feature throughout the rest of the decade, of course. Drew, what is our next film?
0: I almost want to call my parents uh, for this one and ask them, what the hell were you thinking when you took 12-year-old me to the theater to see The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas?
1: Don't touch that down. You know what's going on in this innocent-looking ranch. Attaboy. And what's going on is evil, immoral, and against the law. Everybody on! They say it's indecent. They say they're going to close it down because with Bird and Dolly, this much fun just couldn't be legal. It's the best little in Texas. A universal picture. In your parents' defense, the film is not nearly as uh, tacky as it sounds. It obviously has sexuality, it obviously has some nudity. There's a whole
0: musical number about we're going to go get fucked this weekend. And it's something else. We've talked about our love of nine to five. We've talked about how much we love that movie. And I love all the responses from people that weren't as familiar with it who have seen it now. This is the other Colin Higgins, Dolly Parton film. And we lost something special when he passed away and wasn't able to make more movies with her because he a knew how to shoot dance. And when this film
1: gets to a production number, it goes for it. But also he knew how to shoot Dolly. She's great in this. Burt Reynolds is her love interest. He's not so great when he's asked to sing, but when he's not singing, I think the two of them have a, a really warm chemistry together. She
0: softens him, doesn't she?
1: Yeah, they're really fun together. He's sweet and goofy. I gotta say, before we go any further, if there was ever an MVP for a musical of the 80s, it is Charles Durning. Ooh. I love to dance a little sidestep. Oh, my God. Is he wonderful? He has two big numbers that are just fantastic.
0: Sidestep is so great that for years, that's all I remembered about the movie. And now going back and watching it, I really love Hard Candy Christmas, the song that they sing when the whorehouse is closing down. There is such a beautiful sadness to that song and also a real wisdom as the women are singing about, you know, maybe I'll go teach. Maybe I'll go back to school. Maybe I'll go do this. And there is a wistfulness to the idea that they're ever getting out of this life and that choices are made for them and that they aren't necessarily making these choices. That song is gorgeous. The stuff that Dolly Parton wrote for the movie, because there's, this was based on a Broadway show that actually closed its run the month the movie came out in theaters. And, it got some awards and it was well liked, but it was not a monster hit musical. And some of the music they didn't end up bringing over to the movie. Some of them, some of the songs they used, but they adapted a little bit. And then Dolly just wrote some music for the movie. And I love that. There's another movie we're about to talk about that has a theme song that was that had a total out of context life away from the movie. This one has a song that was written for this movie. That has become one of the biggest songs of all time. And most people have zero idea that it was originally sung by a madam to a sheriff when her whorehouse closed.
1: It is weird to see that song pop up here. And I think what works best about the movie is it's sexy and saucy. Let's not be gross. I think the title might be the most potentially offensive thing about it. If they made it today, it would be called brothel. I, think. I
0: love Jim neighbors as uh, Burt Reynolds deputy. And he's got, Not a lot to do, but he's got a couple of really funny little lines.
1: Yeah, and Dom DeLuise as the uh, guy who wants to... I like him
0: as the bad guy opposite Bert, and watching those two play that dynamic is pretty great.
1: I wouldn't be surprised if uh, we get a few responses from people who dug this one up because we recommended it and were pleasantly surprised by how charming it is. I've gone
0: back to it a couple of times since it came out on Blu-ray. I really do. I think it is an old fashioned classic musical and my favorite stuff about it. In fact, I think my favorite scene in the whole film is there's a moment where Don Parton and Burt Reynolds are having a secret love affair. Nobody in the town supposed to know that they're dating, but of course everybody does. And they have one of their afternoon get togethers and just the, the sweet chemistry between them as people that have been sleeping together for two decades and are afraid to say, I love you to one another, but clearly do. They're both so good.
1: Uh, And now let's move on to another comedy related to sex. How about that for a segue, Drew? This one is unrelated to the Stephen King book of the same name, but it is called Night Shift. When Bill told Chuck he wanted to start an escort service in the city morgue, Chuck was reluctant Are you going to change your mind? But soon, everyone was dying to get in. There are women with strange men, and we are making money from that. Is this a great country or what? This is a morgue. You're partying in a morgue. Night Shift, rated R. Starts Friday. Check newspapers for a theater near you. It's time to
0: start getting into this. First of all, this is Ron Howard getting jumped in at the studio level. He had already directed for Roger Corman, but this was the graduation. This was he's making a Yeah, sp- this is his yeah. second.
1: He did uh, Eat My Dust in 77. This was Ron Howard's Warner Brothers feature and his literal. Well, not literal, but his break, his big breakout.
0: And everything here is the sort of chemical combination that he's going to have in place for the rest of the 80s it's him it's brian Grazer as producer it's logan's and Babylon mandel on script and i gotta say i think it's really lovely that henry winkler starred in this if you didn't live through happy days you may not understand how big it was but henry winkler on happy days was huge he was a television superstar He would walk into the episode and they'd have to stop for five minutes because people would go nuts Everyone watched that show, and it killed his film career. So I love that Howard cast him 100% against the Fawn's type here, and he's really good. He does a good nebbish, and he's really good with Shelley Long.
1: You know, and Michael Keaton, who is, you know, his breakout. This is his big debut, and he is a force of nature in this movie, sometimes slightly overbearing, but still quite energetic and fun. That's the prototypical Michael Keaton that we always chased in the 80s, this bundle of comedic energy.
0: This is the beginning of an archetype that we're going to see a lot of this decade. The guy I would never want to be in a room with in real life.
1: Right. The lovable loser, let's call him. How about that? The charming douchebag.
0: And from the moment he walks in, go Da-na-na-na-na. how many movies in the 80s begin with a white dude walking into a room, listening to a Walkman, singing a song loudly and badly? With sunglasses on and his
1: collar pointed up.
0: There must be 60 of them, and this is one of the ones where, boy, he goes for it.
1: Michael Keaton and Henry Winkler star as a pair of morgue attendants who turn their place of work into a brothel.
0: I guess loosely based on a news article that they read about guys that got arrested because they were running a a service out of an actual morgue. Shelley Long is the hooker who lives next door to Henry Winkler. And how many times in this decade are we going to see a movie where there's a guy who falls in love with a girl who works in the sex trade and they have a great relationship and everything's wonderful until he gets his feelings hurt and he calls her a whore. And that's the end of things.
1: Oh, you're fine with this uh, morally questionable career until you get angry and then it's wrong. It's just, it's lazy writing. But I am a huge fan of Gans and Mandel. They wrote Splash, Spies Like Us, Gung-Ho, Vibes, and Parenthood. Night Shift has some... Tonal
0: issues. (laughs) I I love that Richard Belzer is one of the killer pimps here.
1: Yeah, it gets a little bit dark uh, and a little bit sappy. And and I think the movie is at its best when it's just being kind of raucous. Keep your eyes
0: peeled during a party at the Borg for a young Kevin Costner playing a frat guy doing a conga line. My favorite thing about uh, the chemistry between Shelley Long and Henry Winkler is you can see why she ended up becoming a big TV superstar after this. She has killer chops. She's so good that she makes an unpalatable character in some ways palatable.
1: Winkler and Keaton, if not right away, but eventually, strike a very good uh, rapport together. And Shelley Long is great. A lot of the mm, subplots and side journeys aren't quite as interesting, but the central three characters keep it afloat. And certainly not Ron Howard or Mandel and Gans's best film, but uh, kind of a good launching pad for all three of them.
0: And the song that was written for this one for the closing credits. And it was not a big hit out of this movie, but then it got recorded a couple of years later and it got turned into an AIDS anthem. And that's what Friends Are For became a monster sap hit in radio in the late 80s. Ladies and gentlemen, a love story between a hooker and a dude that runs a morgue. That's what that song was written for. There is something about that that just entertains me now. Nobody
1: remembers the origin
0: of that song, and it got totally repurposed.
1: You know what entertained me a lot, Drew? Would it be our next movie? Well, yes, but I want to be more specific. I challenge you uh, to find a more interesting or impressive body of work than Woody Allen's output in the 1980s including the film we're about to cover. Zelig, Broadway Danny Rose, The Purple Rose of Cairo, Hannah and Her Sisters, Radio Days, September, and Crimes and Misdemeanors. That's an impressive series of films. And his stretch of 80s comedies began in 1982 with A Midsummer Night's Sex Comedy. (laughs) A Midsummer Night's Sex Comedy. I believe in science and sex and sex.
0: Can there be love without sex? Sex alleviates tension
1: and love causes it. Nothing is real but experience. It's all in the pectoral muscles. You should try it. That which can be touched, Oh. felt... Oh, oh. Would you two prefer to be alone? Or in some scientific fashion prove... That you were and had been sleeping with everyone. everyone. Not everyone. Uh-huh. Well, maybe it was
0: everyone. Yeah.
1: A Midsummer Night Sex Company.
0: Look, you want to know why we're going to end up talking about Woody Allen films for as long as we talk about movies? It is not in spite of him being a creep at this point. It's because he's a creep. There's a scene in this movie, in a Midsummer Night sex comedy, where Mel Ferrer propositions Julie Haggerty. And if you wanted to teach a class about consent and how to be an adult in sexual relationships, that scene could actually be the text that you teach. It is literally... The exact right way to handle the entire conversation. Just set aside the fact that Ferrer is breaking the trust of his fiance because that's not the point. In terms of his approach to Haggerty, this is exactly right. He makes his interest clear. He tells her what his relationship with his fiance is. He asks her about her own sexual attitudes and interests, and he's very respectful and non aggressive. And they're just sitting. It's not. There's no duress. They're not in a place where she feels cornered or anything.
1: It is a really interesting scene. Basically, it's a two couples at at a beautiful isolated lake house. And it's just banter, bickering and bantering and misunderstandings and uh, romance and breakups. Tony Roberts is great in this. You know, if you ranked all those Woody Allen films from the 1980s, this would probably rank somewhere near the bottom. Yet it's still quite amiable and likable. It just likeable. blows
0: my mind that a guy who has purportedly done the things that Woody Allen has could write a scene like that scene between Mel Ferrer and Julie Haggerty. And, you know, you look at Manhattan and I get that. There's no real mystery in how he makes that movie. And I don't mean that even as a cheap shot joke. I think that movie's very complicated and I think it, it really is him wrestling with his, his own nature. But at 47, I'm just now in what I would consider the first truly healthy, fulfilling adult relationship I've ever had. And I think that those are really not modeled on film very often. Most romantic comedies are garbage based on behavior that nobody actually takes part in. How many romantic comedies have you seen that are based on two people who lie to each other like fucking psychotics for no reason other than plot mechanics? Woody Allen might be a terrible person, but his characters cover such a broad spectrum of the way people relate to one another and the way we wrestle with our worst and our best urges and the way we talk to each other and hopefully the way adults approach one another about these things that I have a really hard time saying that we should remove these films from the conversation. Uh, part of Loving Art is you make peace with the fact that any of it, at any time, can suddenly be revealed to be the work of someone rotten. But the work itself and your relationship to it doesn't mean that I support this shitty person being shitty. I find Alan lacking as a person. I'm not sure I need new Woody Allen movies. But these movies... Are full of great work. They are. They have earned their place by virtue of the work itself. I think Mary Steenburgen is great here. I think Julie Haggerty is as funny and as beautiful as she ever was in a movie.
1: Regardless of people's thoughts on Woody Allen, you know, I, I doubt I'll be seeing any of his new films uh, anytime soon. Nor do I think that, aside from this podcast, I'll be revisiting any of his older films anytime soon. Uh, but like Drew said, that doesn't change the fact that if you take these films separate separate them from the artist. I think they're all great films. I think
0: that I think the reason they're great films is because he's somebody who has spent his entire life wrestling with these thoughts and these ideas. And I think it's in the work. I I do think sometimes terrible people can make good work, and I think he's one of them. I want to use this as a transition into the next movie, because our next movie is directed by a guy who, by all accounts, everybody loved and was a great dude. And I have to say an officer and a gentleman hates women.
1: Richard Gere is earning his wings the hard way. You ready to quit now, Mayo? Listen. It's up to Louis Gossett Jr. Ah. to make him an officer. Oh. I got nowhere up to go! And up to Deborah Winger to make him a gentleman. I love you. Richard Gere, Deborah Winger, and Oscar winner Louis Gossett Jr. in An Officer and a Gentleman. Sunday night at 5 on KPTV 12. I think this movie is loathsome. I saw it in my 20s, thought, yeah, okay, I could see why it's iconic. I see why people referenced that scene. Uh, you know, it was a big hit. I didn't think much of it. Watched it a week and a half ago, and I thought, what the fuck were people thinking? Oh, it's gross, like-
0: man. This movie hates women.
1: I don't I don't entirely
0: disagree, but I'd like to hear your so the the entire film is it's uh, Richard Gere plays a guy who was raised by a piece of garbage, a a military guy who would only every now and then show up. And he really didn't know him until he got to be a teenager. His mother died. He had to go live with his father, uh, Robert Loja. And right away, you see why he has zero good relationships with women. His dad, like, takes him to whorehouses. They live above a whorehouse in the Philippines. They get laid side by side. And. I mean, the opening scene in this movie is Richard Gere getting up from what looks like a threesome with his father. Uh, Mind-bogglingly gross. And then he joins the Navy because he wants out. He wants to be something better. He wants to be better than his father was. And so he moves to this small town where they have the Naval Trainee Program, and it's for everybody who's going to be an officer who wants to jump into the military at that level. So all the drill instructor stuff in this movie with Lou Gossett Jr., Gossett's great, and he got Oscar nominated for this, and he does what he's supposed to. Deborah Winger, again, she can't play a false note. She's incapable of being anything but good in a movie. But the engine of this movie is that the women who live in this small town all want to trap an officer, marry him, and get out of this small town. So the movie is about this sort of transactional relationship where every woman in this movie wants to catch a man. There's very little about this movie that is about genuine love. The... Relationship between Lisa Blunt and David Keith in the movie is grotesque. You know, that iconic ending, you talk about why the ending is iconic. I think that ending is bullshit. That ending is the most unearned iconic ending of all time because he treats her like garbage all the way through the movie. He doesn't want a relationship. He makes it clear all it is is sex. They have zero actual like adult chemistry or any like real reason to be together. He dumps her. His friend kills himself, and so even though there's no scene where they reconcile, and there's no scene where he apparently changes his mind for any reason, I guess he just decides, eh, okay, it's better than being alone. And so he goes and grabs her out of the factory, and the the moment that kills me is as he's picking her up to leave, it cuts to the woman who had the pregnancy, lost the pregnancy, Told David Keith she didn't want to marry him because she only wanted a pilot, and he had already dropped out of the program. He kills himself. She's standing there. Deborah Winger gets picked up. She looks at her friend, and her friend says, "And I quote: You did it. Yeah, you did it. Fuck you, fuck you, and fuck your movie."
1: It was sold as both, uh, you know, Richard Gere in a romantic drama with Deborah Winger, and then for the guys, it was sold as tough, hard case, uh, drill sergeant, Lou Gossett Jr. versus Richard Gere. The screenplay is written by Douglas Day Stewart. He wrote the blue lagoon, an officer and a gentleman thief of hearts. Listen to me and the scarlet letter with Demi Moore. That's an impressive track record. I mean, impressive as in, how can you produce that consistently terrible films? And this is far and away his most accomplished film. Lou Gossett Jr., great. David Keith, quite good in a, in a small role. If people are angry that we don't like an officer and a gentleman, I am terrified to think of what will happen when we get to Top Gun.
0: If you want further proof that this movie really hates women, look at how they handle Lisa Eilbacher, who is the only female candidate in the uh, training program. By the end of this training program, which is like seven weeks long, she still has zero upper body strength, and they have to yell at her to get over a wall because, you know, girls... I don't buy that an officer candidate seven weeks into their training is still crying while she's trying to climb a wall. But, you know, it's 1982 and she's a girl. So I guess that's what writing is. I hate this movie. And I really do think it's another case of a song that was so gigantic. Man, I'm sure people play this song at their weddings. and I'm sure people will tell you what this song means to them and how emotional it is. What we see in this film is not adult love, and that last image of him carrying her out of the factory, I guarantee they went somewhere, they had some sex, and their relationship imploded because they are awful human beings who don't deserve to be with anybody. Moving on from a movie that I really find skin-crawlingly gross to a movie that I can't believe was made in 1982 because it still feels cutting-edge and beautiful today, we are going to close with the sensational, wonderful, I love this movie,
1: Welcome to The World According to GARP, where anything can happen, and usually does. When I get older, losing my head many years from now, will you still be sending me a valentine's move, let's say greetings, but we'll be safe here. Enjoy the most entertaining movie of the summer, The World According to GARP, rated R. Now playing... My experience with this film is probably quite similar to a lot of young people in that uh, I was addicted to Mork and Mindy, and I, I of course loved Popeye, and probably back in the day knew that this movie was not for me. But oh, it's Robin Williams! Of course, I'm going to love it. And I was probably bored to tears within 15 minutes. Didn't really get to appreciate it until I was in my 20s. Watched it again last week, and man. It really is a fantastic John Irving adaptation.
0: This is where that age gap between us comes in because my parents had told me that I could not go see a movie that had come out a few years earlier. And you know how this works. Your parents tell you you can't see something. It automatically makes the top of your list of I've got to find this movie and see it. And so I was convinced that somehow I had to see this forbidden movie. I was in the library. I saw this book on the shelf. And somehow in my head, I got... Monty Python's Life of Brian, confused with The World According to Garp. So I checked out John Irving's novel and took it home. And my parents had this weird philosophy, which was with movies, it was a lot of debate about what I could and couldn't see and when and what was appropriate and what wasn't. With books, if I wanted to read it, read it. They didn't care. And this book, it changed me because the book is phenomenal. It is an unbelievable novel.
1: All right. Well, I've not read the book. So why don't you give our listeners a, a basic plot synopsis and perhaps anything uh, juicy or interesting that was excised from the novel?
0: Well, the book is a direct reaction to the late 70s. And what Irving thought of John Irving thought of as sort of the, the social landscape of that particular moment. And it is about a author named T.S. Garp, whose mother was a radical feminist at a time when there were no radical feminists. She sort of was a proto-early feminist. And he has no father from birth. He's raised by this very powerful, strong woman. Everything about his life is unconventional. The film follows him from birth to death. And it is his entire life packed in. His marriage, his children, his relationships with women, how he becomes who he becomes, his friends. And Gart becomes a filter because of who his mother is, because of who he is as an author. It becomes a way to sort of explore how tensions were changing in culture because of feminism and the rise of sort of unconventional sexuality in the mainstream. There are characters in this movie that feel groundbreaking today, My favorite character in this movie, and a a performance that I think should be canonized as one of the very best performances of the 80s, is John Lithgow as Roberta Muldoon, who used to be a tight end for the NFL before she transitioned.
1: Part of the reason this film works so well is that you have to have somebody at the helm who can grasp odd or off-kilter material and approach it with respect. George Roy Hill. This is his last great film. Uh, he directed Butch Cassidy and The Sundance Kid. He directed Slapshot. The Sting, a brilliant director. What an unconventional choice. While people like you know Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase were just happy enough to grab comedic vehicles... This is an interesting choice for Robin Williams after Popeye.
0: I, I got to say, and I, I'll i be careful here. I still can't get my head around or my heart around the idea that Robin Williams is gone. It, it hurts so much because I think these performances, the life that is in him, the reason he was right for Garp is because when you see him at his most open. There were so few actors that had what he had that had that light and were able to play darkness and pain and were able to play joy and were able to play all these things in a way that there was no filter. You never felt like he held anything back. It's a remarkable piece of work by him. Yeah. I would set this next to any of the great lead performances from the seventies. I think the choices he makes Um, throughout this entire thing are
1: so beautiful. And I think that people just didn't, including critics, audiences, if you're Robin Williams and all, you know, people know of him is this manic energy. And then they see this where there's nuance and subtlety and sweetness and weirdness and warmth. I don't know if people were prepared for that. You know, by the time we got to Good Morning Vietnam and Dead Poet Society, people like you and I, we had already been prepared for that kind of performance. But I, I can't even imagine Sitting down and being open-minded and just being blown away by how great Robin Williams.
0: The, uh, the Blu-ray for this film that Warner Archive put out is a, a gorgeous transfer, and the um, photography by Miroslav Andrasek in this film. I think one of the things that we've lost in digital, as opposed to film, is the way skin used to look. Uh, George Roy Hill shoots so much of this film in close-up. You look at Williams, there's a scene towards the end of the film where Williams is sitting on the porch outside his mother's house and there's an off-screen phone call and he can't speak. He's, his mouth is wired closed. When you look at those piercing blue eyes of his, I don't know if you can say enough about what he could do just with a look. And when he laughed, he started laughing with his eyes even before his mouth and his body would catch up.
1: Oh, yeah. He's, this is that big, giant smile. You just There was something... Something special.
0: Likewise, when he played anger or when he played heartbreak, it was almost too much to take.
1: We cannot discuss this film without at least mentioning the brilliant Glenn Close. How
0: crazy is it that they were only like seven years apart in real life, but the mother-son dynamic between them in this film, I buy it all the way through. For my money. Ginny Field is a giant character. It would take a Glenn Close to play this.
1: If you take Meryl Streep out of the equation, Glenn Close might be our greatest living actress. Mary Beth Hurt is great in this. And of course, Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy pop up as as a couple and add some real class to this movie. It's very rewarding and unex- and unpredictable and funny and sad and, and strange the
0: anger of the times. Right, man. You know, because Jenny B- publishes this book called Sexual Suspect, which her whole thing. She's a nurse when Garp is young, and she really believes that lust is a cancer and that it is a, a major reason that the world doesn't work right. So when Jenny publishes this book, Sexual Suspect, it becomes a flashpoint for all these feminist extremes as they evolved by the late 70s. So it strikes a nerve in women and she becomes this lightning bolt figure. And watching this film even 10 years ago, I would have said that it was an exaggeration, but I would say, honestly, the last 10 years probably have proved that John Irving was prescient. Like, you look at something like the Ellen Jamesians, the uh, the cult that arises around this little girl that was brutally raped, whose tongue was cut out, and there's the Ellen James Society, a group of women who have voluntarily had their own tongues cut out as an act of protest, and they sort of go into orbit around Ginny and sort of become her protectors and almost close everybody else out of her life. And that subplot alone could have been one movie, but it's simply part of the texture of the times as played by by John Irving. And I love the way Robin Williams deals with all of that. And there's a great moment late in this movie where he comes face to face with Amanda Plummer, who, of course, he later co-starred in The Fisher King with in one of the greatest performances he ever gave and maybe her best work.
1: Oh, dude, you know what? I think that'll be the one where I cry.
0: And that, again, it made it even harder to watch in some ways. The film is definitely on the side of women, and it is about a world full of men just waiting for a chance to do them harm. And you see that in in Roberta, the way uh, John Lithgow's character plays out, which, dude, we've talked about how 82 feels very progressive with making love and Victor Victoria. and We've got Tootsie coming and we've got personal best this movie and the way they treat Roberta in this movie helped me because at 12, I loved Roberta. I, I got it. I understood. Yeah, the it.
1: fact that that the fact that she's treated like a yes, it's different. Yes, it can even be strange, but she's. Still a human being, not a a subject of ridicule. Get used to it. Now look at her like a character. That's it. End of story.
0: They let Lithgow play her as a woman, and they never make a joke out of her.
1: And that's the key. We have to mention the adaptation by Steve Tesich, a great screenwriter who died too young. This gentleman wrote uh, Breaking Away. Well, he wrote Four Friends, which we covered, and he wrote Eyewitness right before this. After this, he would do Eleni and American Flyers before he'd pass away. And I think The World According to Gart might be, uh, well, Breaking Away is amazing, but I think this might be his finest.
0: There's, there's a subtle thing in this movie that a lot of people never notice, and I really only picked it up in recent viewings of it. There's no score. And when there's no score in a film, they use music and they certainly use some songs here and there, but because there's no score, there's no constant cue telling you how you're supposed to feel about anything. It makes you do the work. There's a moment that defines the success of this film that taught me a lot about storytelling. And I still think you can learn enormous amounts of storytelling from watching this and from reading the book. It's a scene that comes late in the film. It's about two thirds of the way through. And in the book, Um, when it happens, there's a car crash. Everybody involved in the car crash has something happen to them. It's very horrible. It's very sudden. It involves Garp, his two sons, his wife, her boyfriend. And when it happens in the book, Irving jumps forward in time. We immediately see Garp and Helen. We see how they are. But what we don't see is what happened to his sons. And Irving makes you wait for it for something like 100 pages. George Roy Hill does the same thing. And they understand why that's so powerful because and they also understand they can't do it the exact same way the book handles it in one way but they also leave that detail so that when they finally drop it on you and you finally learn exactly what happens it's devastating it is such a gorgeous piece of storytelling
1: it is i think it's safe to say our pick of the month if you have never seen the world according to garp Please give it a watch and let Drew and I know what you think of it, whether you love it, hate it. we are I doubt you'll hate it, but we'd love to hear your thoughts. And then, Drew, uh, why don't you give our listeners a sneak peek of what they'll get next episode?
0: We are going to do Charlton Heston searching for gold. We're going to do Cheech and Chong as the real decline began. We're going to do part three of one of the biggest uh, slasher franchises. Don Croscarelli is back. And we're going to do maybe the greatest high school film of the entire decade. All of that and more when we see you back here in two weeks for August of
1: 1982. Thanks, all.